Hello friends, Ryan Rodriguez here. As you may remember from the last time, this is kinda the Coolness Chronicles, but also kinda not. It's the Chronicles Reconsidered. Usually in these minisodes we focus on one film previously riffed on MST3K, and I watch this film in its original form and then try to review it on its own merits, then compare my findings with the quote-unquote experiment. But this week, we're not talking about Joel and the Bots. We're revisiting a random recommendation. So what do you say? Are you ready to reconsider the Chronicles? If so, climb aboard, because we're going for a ride. Oh, and major spoilers ahead. Way back in Chapter 2 of the Mothership Podcast, the random recommendation for that week was 1967's Hammer adaptation of Quatermass and the Pit. To put it lightly, I didn't care for the film. In fact, it kinda bugged me, no pun intended. But I noticed whilst doing research that it was a close adaptation of a 1958 BBC miniseries of the same name, written by Nigel Neal and directed by Rudolf Cartier. I also took note that everyone from Stephen King to John Carpenter have cited it as a crucial influence, and I promised to track down the miniseries, fully prepared to revise my opinion on the story itself. On November 12th of last year, the BBC released a newly remastered Blu-ray of the miniseries in the UK, so I hopped over to Amazon UK and bought it. Did I eat my former words? Listen on, friends. Listen on. The series stars Andre Morel as Professor Bernard Quatermass, head of the post-war space-age British rocket group. A brilliant scientist and pacifist, Quatermass is being pushed out of the group by the military, which is also trying to alter the group's modus operandi, and being replaced by Colonel Breen, played by Anthony Bushell. Quatermass helped design bases for the Moon and Mars that have, in the recent years since the founding of the group, been retrofitted to act as storage areas for ballistic slave missiles that would be equipped to launch from space and obliterate quote-unquote hostile forces on Earth if Britain were ever attacked. Surely, sir, we've come to no agreement so far. But I, I should have thought we had a, a very substantial measure about the rocket group, its finances, administration... But not policy. We're not here to formulate policy. That's for a higher level, as well, you know. We must express our views. We are men, not mechanical computers. Professor Quatermass, isn't your concern unduly personal? I think we all realize how much is owed to your formative influence. I brought the rocket group into being. But it is, after all, a government project. It always has been. It was intended for peaceful scientific research, not to be perverted to fulfill such a monstrous conception as this, oh, this dead man's deterrent. Meanwhile, paleontologist Dr. Matthew Roney, played by Sec Linder, perhaps best known as the second Felix Leiter in the James Bond films, is called to an urban construction site to investigate an abnormal skull and deduces that it belongs to a fossilized primitive humanoid. Given temporary access to the site to check for additional fossils, Roney and his crew dig until they hit a curved metal surface. That's when Breen shows up and shuts off all access to the site, the military believing the metal object to be an unexploded bomb from World War II. Anxious to get back to work and given a narrow amount of time for, by the property owners, Roney calls in a favor from his friend Quatermass, 
whom he still believes to have some cachet with the government, and he agrees to come down to the site to help prevent another governmental appropriation of important scientific work. Unfortunately, Breen overhears their discussion and decides to also head toward the site to supervise. As the military personnel take over the site and excavate further, Roney does further research on the fossils he's collected so far and comes to a startling realization. The metallic object is not a bomb, but it is the same age as the first skull that he dug up. Roney, tell me again, how long did you estimate that skull had been there? Something like five million years. Five million years. From this point on, Roney, Quatermass, and Breen each supervise separate elements of the dig, which comes to a head when the metal surface is revealed to be a large craft. The inside of the capsule is empty, but one of the walls has a pentacle etched onto it. The military decides to drill into the craft, which is so durable that it has no physical effect, but prolonged exposure to the craft begins to make the soldiers and scientists in the vicinity to behave abnormally, having visions of demonic and ghostly apparitions. Quatermass starts to look into the ghost sightings around the area, finding that one particular soldier's account has several things in common with a specific haunting reported in the area in 1927, and begins to discover similar recorded happenings that date back as far as the medieval era, all occurring when the land was disturbed. The military finally manages to pull down the panel inside the craft with the pentacle on it, causing a massive disturbance that affects most of the people at the site. Revealed are three locust-like creatures. The demons. It's all right, they're dead. They've been dead for a long time. Knowing that these carcasses are five million years old, Quatermass and Roney theorize that the capsule is an alien spacecraft sent from Mars, which was the closest civilization to have possibly been inhabited that long ago, and that the Martians have some sort of residual psychic projections, which would explain the ghost sightings both past and present. They use a device of Roni's invention that records video from the optical center of the brain on Roni's assistant Barbara, who was affected by exposure to the craft. The images broadcast from her brain depict a gruesome slaughter amongst the Martian locust monsters that Quatermass deduces is a racial purge. He then somehow deduces that Martians must have come to Earth in crafts like the one they unearthed and abducted primitive pre-human creatures and genetically altered them, giving them psychic abilities like telepathy and telekinesis. Naturally, these abilities have been slowly bred out of the species as humankind evolved, but echoes have remained. People unknowingly utilizing latent telekinesis could explain the reports of hauntings, and psychic abilities activated by proximity to the capsule could explain the ghost sightings. Sidebar. Though it turns out that this actually seems to be the truth, sorry, but I warned you about spoilers earlier, I have no idea how Quatermass came to this conclusion. Ghost sightings and a disturbed alien capsule being connected are not a stretch at all, but making the leap to alien abduction and human evolution seems like a theory that, from a credible mind, would take years to form, and on an Alex Jones-level mind would take seconds, and Quatermass is definitely in the first category, which makes his quick conclusion suspicious. End sidebar. Quatermass presents his hypothesis in the Martian Massacre video to the military, but Breen and his fellow stuffed shirts decide for some reason that the whole craft situation is a Nazi propaganda trick, and they hold a media event to prove their conclusions. Quatermass warns them that what they see in the video could happen to humans, but they press ahead anyway. The energy provided by the cameras and electrical equipment during the media event power up the capsule until it's activated. This turns every person in attendance with latent alien genes into a hive mind that begin a murderous ethnic cleansing on those without said genes. 
The craft slowly melts away, and an image of a Martian demon is projected in the London sky. Riots and fires break out, as Quatermass and Roni try to maintain their composure while the insanity grows. Breen is killed by the energy emitted from the craft, and Quatermass eventually becomes part of the hive and tries to kill Roni, who uses an iron chain to defeat the projection in the sky, which results in the end of the event, the destruction of the craft, and his own death. Sidebar. Roni uses the iron chain because of his remembrance of legends of demons being averse to iron and water. Since it works, does that mean that demons are actually Martians? Because if so, it completely destroys the Bible-based concept of demons and the nature of hell, and therefore the nature of heaven and creation. So the message of the story is blasphemy, just worded in a vague late-50s way so as to avoid censorship. Or so, I think. End sidebar. After Roni's sacrifice, the rest of London, Quatermass included, finally snap out of their delusion, and the good professor gives Roni's eulogy live on television, then brings it all home. If another of these things should ever be found, we are armed with knowledge, but we also have knowledge of ourselves and of the ancient destructive urges in us that grow more deadly as our populations increase and approach in size and complexity those of ancient Mars. Every war crisis, witch hunt, race riot, purge, is a reminder and a warning. We are the Martians. If we cannot control the inheritance within us, this will be their second dead planet. The political commentary evident throughout Quatermass in the Pit may feel incredibly prescient and relevant in today's climate but it was even more timely in 1958 when it was being written and produced. In fact, creator Nigel Neal was very aware of Britain's worsening social strifes and was inspired by the various attacks of violence against black communities by white Britons that eventually led to the Notting Hill race riots. It was inspired by these events to write the racial purge motivation of the Martians as a warning. Sidebar. The Notting Hill race riots had nothing to do with just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. I am so sorry. End sidebar. The series was also the third in a trilogy, preceded by The Quatermass Experiment in 1953 and Quatermass 2 in 1955, but I can personally attest that it works as a standalone even if you're not familiar with the Quatermass character. Of course, naturally, I want to track down these earlier series and watch them eventually, perhaps for a future minisode, but with all the work I still have to do to finish the first season of the Mothership podcast, it'll take a while before I get to that. Like the two series before it, Quatermass in the Pit was mostly shot and broadcast live, with scenes containing quote-unquote complicated special effects, outdoor shots, and most scenes in the actual pit filmed beforehand. This lends the series a slightly crude, certainly of-its-time quality that's also kind of charming, not unlike MST3K's early KTMA aesthetic. The effects department, which produced aliens and apparitions, looked relatively impressive for such a primitive time in broadcast history, and were allotted only 50 pounds for all six episodes, which levels out to about 1,100 pounds after inflation, or $1,500. It proves both how cheap the BBC was, and still is, and how resourceful the journeyman effects people were. For the inverse effect, take a look at a Dalek Sunday, and try to imagine how that alone could have ever cost more than 50 pounds. Anyway, as I mentioned in the introduction, Quatermass in the Pit has remained incredibly influential throughout the past 60 years. Writer-director John Carpenter has used the last name Quatermass as a pseudonym for a few scripts, and even co-wrote Halloween 3 with creator Nigel Neal, though both of their names are not on the finished product. 
Stephen King's also a big fan, evident in the plot for his book The Tommyknockers, in which the residents of a small town in Maine gradually fall under the influence of some mysterious object buried in the woods. Something that I noted in my review of the feature film version that I haven't noted anywhere else online is the similarity between the Martians' past actions and the backstory for the Marvel Comics characters The Inhumans, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. In that backstory, published in 1967, an alien race called the Kree experimented on primitive Earthlings utilizing their own DNA as a way of creating a mutant race of soldiers in their war against the shape-shifting nemeses, the Skrulls. As humankind evolved over time, a select part of the population, known as Inhumans, retained a dormant gene that, when exposed to a chemical mutagen called the Terrigen Mist, grants the Inhumans superpowers, not unlike their counterparts the X-Men. Not that the Inhumans and the X-Men are overly similar. I'm not saying that. I'm implying it, but I'm not saying it. While I enjoyed the series quite a bit, most of the problems that I had with the feature film adaptation persisted here. Somehow the special effects are better in the series, with the alien race purge standing out as particularly gruesome and effective, but the faults in the story remain the same. Since the film was essentially a direct translation, slightly expanded in terms of scope, but with a pared-down 90-minute running time, several shots and lines of dialogue are recreated shot-for-shot and beat-for-beat in the film. The stunning leaps of logic that Quatermass makes in his theories regarding Martian experimentation on pre-humans are borderline ridiculous, and the military's insistence on declaring the spacecraft a Nazi hoax despite having video evidence of alien interference strikes me as particularly absurd, although you could make the argument that it was all an allegory for bureaucracy's perversion and subversion of science. I would have to agree, but also add that, although it may be an allegory, it's not a particularly clever one. A perfect example of doing a similar story that is far more effective and believable in this department is the 1972 TV movie The Night Stalker, in which a reporter named Carl Kolchak tries to prove that a local serial killer is in fact a vampire. Despite having evidence and some plausible theories, Kolchak is never taken seriously by his editor or the local police until it's too late, but it turns out that the police just want him out of the city and are willing to ignore anything to accomplish their goal. All that said... I'm glad I tracked this series down. For all its faults, it's exceptional television and three hours well worth spending. While it's only available on Blu-ray in the UK for now, whenever it's made available here, I would heartily recommend it. That's all for this week. If you're enjoying these minisodes, tell a friend, share it with a stranger, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, rate us on whatever source you use, and visit our Facebook page, the links to which are in the show notes for this episode. Every little share and recommendation helps immeasurably. Next time, we'll be back to our normal format of revisiting MST3K experiments with a double feature from Season 1 on the Comedy Channel, The Crawling Hand and The Black Scorpion. Until we meet again, friends, remember, do what you love, don't be a dick, And as always, I mean goodbye for now. Coolness Chronicles is written, produced, and edited by Ryan Rodriguez. Executive producers are Tracy Rodriguez and Luis Rodriguez. Original music by Bill Sherm. Please visit buildsherm.bandcamp.com for more information.